0: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can uh, subscribe to both of those newsletters by going to MiningStocks.com, MiningStocks.com. And the best place to go to follow everything I do, however, is uh, JTaylorMedia.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Go Gold Resources, and Uranium Energy uh, Corporation. I have entitled today's show, The Empowerment of Gold by Bitcoin. James Turk, Trace Meyer and uh, are back with us today. Uh, James Turk holds uh, patents for the use of electronic gold payment system via the internet and Trace Meyer is a lawyer he's a monetary scientist and an entrepreneur who has been one of the leaders in the development of Bitcoin this week's show replays a panel discussion in which James Turk and Trace Meyer discuss uh, in which they discuss the potential for Bitcoin and gold to grow as currencies Uh, and that uh, that panel discussion took place in Zurich, Switzerland on the 3rd of June. Uh, it was um, hosted by the European Gold Forum. Bitcoin technology for laymen, Bitcoin as a currency versus a store of value, liquidity of gold and Bitcoin for currency purposes, and the legal aspects of both currencies both gold and Bitcoin for currencies, and the potential for governments to crack down on Bitcoin and to crack the Bitcoin code. Those are all topics that were discussed in the panel discussion that will be uh, coming up momentarily after our first commercial break. Uh, In the second hour of today's show, your host uh, will replay an interview. I was interviewed, in fact, uh, by a YouTube channel, Reluctant Preppers, Uh, in which I discuss uh, the philosophical and spiritual ways that I feel we need to prepare for what could be some very dark days ahead. Well, we do need to go to a commercial break. Uh, When we come back, or you will be listening to Trace Meyer and James Turk as they talk about the empowerment of gold by Bitcoin. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
1: Go Gold Resources, considered a buy by several well-known analysts, is soon to be Mexico's newest gold and silver producer, with two impressive developments. Go Gold's Paral Tailings Project, with first pour anticipated in May, is expected to produce 1.8 million ounces of silver equivalent per year, generating a steady 12-year cash flow. Santa Gertrudis, a past-producing gold mine, could potentially be put back into production by mid-2015. Advancing quickly and led by a team of experienced mine builders, Go Gold is one to
3: watch. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. Uh, I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, as I just noted, we are going to play a panel discussion uh, in which Trace Meyer and James Turk discussed uh, bitcoins and gold. Both Trace and James have been on this show before. Uh, I am pleased today to pass along the audio of a panel discussion conducted by Paul Burton on behalf of the latest European Gold Forum meeting which was held in Zurich, Switzerland on June 3rd. Trace Meyer is a lawyer and monetary scientist. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, He explains in lay terms Bitcoin's technology and how it will be very difficult for government to control that technology. And James Turk explains how Bitcoin is not in competition with gold money, but instead provides uh, really is a complement to Bitcoin. Listen to what both of these experts have to say about the application of evolving technology to a more efficient monetary system and how it threatens control of government dictators like Lenin, Hitler, Mussolini, and Roosevelt, all of whom confiscated gold because gold threatened the power of the state to take away the power and the freedom of the individual. So listen now to this very interesting and I think important conversation which took place on June 3rd in Switzerland.
4: Now I'm delighted to introduce on my far right, uh, Trace Mayer, who is an, uh, an entrepreneur, an investor in Bitcoin, coin sorry, he's uh, um, uh, one of the leaders in, in thinking about and investing in, in this type of uh, new concept in currency. Um, you may have caught his uh, uh, talk yesterday lunchtime. And then on my immediate right is James Turk, who for as long as I can remember has been a great proponent of gold as a currency instead of fiat currency. So what I've asked the panelists to do is to, in the interests of um, educating me actually as much as anybody, is to give uh, just a five to 10 minutes on the concepts that they're talking about. Firstly, Bitcoin. Secondly, uh, gold as currency. So let's, let's have a bit of an introduction from each of them explaining what the concepts are and then we'll hopefully get into some discussion. And again, I'm hoping there's going to be some questions coming from the audience. So uh, Trace, if I may uh, call on you to start.
5: Uh, so I started in virtual currencies. I'm a child of the Internet, you could say. Uh, so decades ago. And uh, my formal education is in accounting and law, and one of the things that really has drawn me to Bitcoin is it's the first practical implementation of triple entry bookkeeping, and uh, it's a way that we're laying down property rights, not in legal code, but in software code, uh, where individuals literally hold the private keys to their own wealth, or can. And that's a very exciting uh, proposition. Uh, because with Bitcoin, you don't need a trusted central third party anymore in order to transfer value over distance or even to uh, have the property rights. So there, you don't need a government, you don't need banks to have property rights or to mediate the transfer of value or anything like that. And that's a very big deal in terms of history. Uh, In the Bitcoin space, I've been an early thought leader. I was first writing about, talking about it publicly when it was around five cents to a quarter. It's currently trading around $450. So in terms of absolute return, it's about twice uh, what Warren Buffett has done over the last 38 years. So that's exciting. Uh, He calls it a mirage, which I think is an inaccurate statement because Bitcoin is real in the sense that it's based on the laws of mathematics and the laws of computer science and the laws of thermodynamics. And in terms of my investments in Bitcoin, I've made investments into the Armory wallet, which is uh, the way to secure your Bitcoins. I'm very uh, paranoid of green space aliens trying to steal my Bitcoins. And so I, you know, we try to make it extremely safe and secure there. And uh, I've also invested in BitPay. I was in their seed round. They're the largest merchant processor. They're currently processing about $30 million a month of Bitcoin transactions for merchants. Uh, They will either uh, collect the Bitcoins and send those to the merchant, or they will convert it into dollars or euros, etc., and then direct deposit the next day to the merchants. And they do it as a software, as a service. So there's no more percentage of the fee like a credit card charges. They'll process uh, $5 million or more for a merchant for $3,000 a month. So it's a very disruptive uh, proposition for the payments industry, which is just one application of Bitcoin, payments and currency. We have thousands of potential applications uh, for this technology uh, because it's a new protocol layer in the Internet. Uh, Just like we have different stacks with TCP IP, and on top of that we have HTTP, and on top of that we have SMTP, uh, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol for emails. That's the rules for routing emails. Uh, HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol. Uh, Bitcoin, you could say, is now money over Internet protocol. Uh, But we we have even additional uh, applications besides just money or currency. And then my other uh, investment is in Kraken. It's the leading uh, euro exchange. We have about 60% of the euro-bitcoin pair and about 5 to 6% of global bitcoin volume that goes through Kraken. And we deal with other cryptocurrencies there also and other fiat currencies. So we have dollars, euros, uh, namecoin, litecoin, bitcoin. Uh, and when I talk about these other Uh, Potential uses, applications. Namecoin, for example, can have distributed DNS. So, where we use ICANN to manage domain name servers, DNS, so when you go to yahoo.com and it points to to Yahoo's server, uh, we're using a trusted third party for that. We're using ICANN. And that's who you would serve a national security letter to and then you could, instead of someone going to Yahoo, they would end up going to some other server. And so how do we establish trust on the Internet? How do we know that the party we're actually communicating to is who we want to communicate to? Uh, blockchain technology, Bitcoin being the first uh, use of this, uh, is how we, come, how we can come up with that distributed trust, that programmable trust, right in uh, to, the, to the protocol layer. So it's going to be a very exciting uh, time with the development of the Internet and really the reconstitution of it, because the way we've built the Internet to date has been based on, on an old model with a technology that uh, wasn't available. For example, Mark Andreessen, one of the leading VCs at Andreessen Horowitz, 60-plus uh, percent of the NASDAQ's market cap has come out of Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, he built the first web browser, and in the web browser there's a 404 error uh, page not found. Well, there's a, also a 402 error that Mark Andreessen put in 20 plus years ago, and it's payment method not specified. So they had thought about this when they were building the first web page, but the technology hadn't been invented, and that technology has now been invented with Bitcoin, so it's going to have a lot of implications and changes for how the internet and, and all of this works.
4: Trace, thank you. Before I turn to James, can, can, you, can we just go back slightly, again for my benefit as much as anybody. Can you just talk through the mechanics of how they're generated and, um, and how you mine
5: um, with bitcoins? That's my interest. Yeah, well, I guess it's how deep do we want to get because that's... Uh, in the most simplest sense, uh, we have computers that are running this algorithm, this protocol... And we create what's called a blockchain. Uh, It started with the first block, the Genesis block, back in January 3rd of 2009. That was block number one. And when we make a transaction in Bitcoin, we have a public key and a private key. This is from asymmetric cryptography. Uh, The public key, anybody can know. The private key is what gives you the power or the ability to actually sign the transaction and the network will recognize it as being valid, as being following the rules of the protocol. So uh, all the Bitcoins exist in, an, in a, one of these public key addresses and someone may or may not have the private key. And the way they get into those addresses is when you create a new block, uh, when you're mining and you, you're attempting to solve what's called a nonce, uh, you're just doing work uh, and eventually you find one, Uh, you solve the block and you will include whichever transactions uh, you want as the miner who found the block into that block. And so the transactions are the debit and the credit from one address to another and when they get included into the block and get confirmed by the network, that's the triple entry, uh, bookkeeping, that's the confirmation, the validation. And these blocks, they get layered on top of each other approximately every 10 minutes and we're up to I think 260,000 blocks and you could say that this blockchain is the DNA of Bitcoin uh, and it has these rules and so that's effectively how it works and each block is tied to the block before it uh, through mathematical law and so you can prove mathematically all of these transactions that have ever happened in the Bitcoin network you can prove that that debit and that credit actually happen. And when you get the new Bitcoins and that address, you can prove that lineage through, uh, through math. And so that's very different from our current system where we have centralized entities that have a database that represents your bank account, but you can't necessarily prove that those digits uh, coming out of the computer screen are actually there. Whereas with Bitcoin, everybody has access to this blockchain And so everybody can come to the same consensus, uh, distributed consensus, distributed trust of what the balances are. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and it...
4: I was going to say, to, okay for now.
5: To, to, to make it even, we'll come back to a couple of those points in a minute. To, to make it even more fun, it uses a Merkle root. <laughs> it, it uses a Merkle root for mathematics. So that's even more fun. But I mean, you have to understand this has been created by PhDs in in lots of different subjects, from uh, mathematics, cryptography, uh, physics, or all the people working on this. So we have a lot of explosive intellectual. Uh, Work that that has gone into this—it's not a simple subject. No, clearly, um, but not, neither is gold mining.
4: And I understand gold mining much better. <laughs> um, I want to give James a, uh, a spot here, I, I understand gold. So, uh, but tell us about. Gold as a currency, and how you've your, your, your concepts for this and your philosophy f- for this, and, and the work you've done over many, many, numerous years now.
6: Okay. Uh, first of all, let's talk a little bit about money and, and what it is because it's important to understand the point I'm going to make about currency. You know, we use money for three different things. First of all, it's important in economic calculation. In other words, we use money to determine the prices of goods and services. Secondly, money is supposed to preserve purchasing power over long periods of time and gold does this beautifully. An ounce of gold today buys the same amount of crude oil it did ten years ago. You know gold was or back in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine gold was two hundred and fifty, and crude oil is twenty dollars a barrel. It bought, it buys, an ounce of gold buys the same amount of crude oil it did in one thousand nine hundred and fifty. Uh, In 1914, the British pound bought the same amount of commodity value that it did in 1700 when Sir Isaac Newton invented the gold standard. You know, gold does this beautifully because it follows what Milton Friedman called his K rule. This above ground stock of gold continues to grow year after year after year by approximately 1.75% per annum which is approximately equal to world population growth and new wealth creation. So over long periods of time, you have this consistency between supply and demand of gold and it preserves purchasing power over long periods of time. The third thing that we use money for is currency. Now gold does not circulate today as currency because of a thing called Gresham's law. Uh, Gresham was Sir Thomas Gresham. He was a financial advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, and he said that basically bad money drives out good. So when you have a a money, you can either spend it or you can save it. But Gresham's law says you spend the bad money and you save the good money. So today, gold is saved and accumulated, and we spend fiat currencies instead. Now, the point I want to make about currencies, and this ties into Bitcoin, and it also ties into my vision for gold as a form of currency. If you look back through history, currency evolves. It becomes more and more efficient. You know, you started with cattle as currency, weights of metal, Eventually, coins, Sir so Isaac Newton invented the clipping of a coin uh, excuse me the milling of the edge of a coin so that you could see whether a coin was clipped or not. Then, along came paper currency, which again was more efficient and less costly than moving coins. Along came wire transfers along, uh, before wire transfers, checking accounts, wire transfers 1950s uh, came plastic cards, and today we 're talking about digital currency. Now, the thing about digital currency and, in fact, any improvement technology in the, in the development of currency, it's actually a good thing because what you want to do is you want to eliminate as much as possible all of the impediments to commerce. You want to eliminate those impediments that keep us from interacting with one another. And one of the big impediments is the cost of making a payment. You know, Whether you're making a payment you know, across town or across the globe, there's a cost associated with that. And each of these developments of currency have made currency more efficient and less costly, and that's what digital currency brings to the table. It's a much more efficient form of currency using today's technology, and I think that's the the key point that I want to make. Now, there are two ways you can look at digital currency. You can do what we were doing in gold money, which is basically digital gold currency, where the gold stays in the vault, and you click using your iPhone or your computer, a weight of metal from you as the payer to some individual as the payee. The gold stays in the vault, but the ownership transfers instantaneously from the payer to the payee to make that payment. Very, very low cost and very efficient. The disadvantage is that governments don't like that. Uh, They don't like gold competing with their own currency, which is fiat currency. But you have now the development of yet another type of digital currency, which is cryptocurrencies. Now I talk about cryptocurrencies in a general sense because Bitcoin happens to be the first mover. Whether Bitcoin is a survivor will depend on what other bi- cryptocurrencies develop in time. But the key here is that we should all take away cryptocurrencies are as important development in the, in, in the history of currency as any one of these other technological developments that I mentioned you know, over the last you know, thousand years. How it's all gonna develop and play out in, in time, we will only have to wait and see. But I would like to bring one other point uh, to, to bear on this conversation, because when you're talking about gold, you cannot avoid the issue of politics. You know, in the, in the 1920s, there was a chap, a German economist by the name of Knapp, uh, K-N-A-P-P, and he came out with what was called the state theory of money. It's really the state theory of currency, because his basic point was that if you can control the currency, you can control the economy, you can then control people. Um, And we've been, throughout the 20th century, using the state control of currency. And I'd like to give you an example. You know, gold can be confiscated. In the 20th century, it was confiscated by Lenin in Russia, Mussolini in Italy, Hitler in Germany, and Roosevelt in the United States. Now, it may seem strange to put these four politicians into one mix or into one bunch, but they basically were all setting out to do the same thing. They all wanted to increase the power of the state and take away the power from the market, take away the power from the individual. So what we're contending with today from a big-picture point of view as we look at money and as we look at currency, the role that the government has taken over the past 100 years compared to what it was previously and the reluctance to give up that power, and perhaps even to the extent that they're reluctant to give up that power, much like the Luddites, to the advancement of new technologies which will improve commerce and make the reduce the impediments of, uh, to commerce by making payments more efficient and less costly. And that's where we are today. I'm a believer in the free market and I think the free market will eventually overcome and we're gonna go back to gold as the center of global commerce. After all, when Nixon, you know, gold's been money for 5,000 years and when President Nixon um, ended the dollars link to gold, he even said he was only uh, ending it, quote unquote, he was suspending uh, temporarily the link to gold. You know, 40 years is sort of long for a temporary point of view, but we're seeing today the imbalances in the monetary system that are as a result of that decision. And inevitably, we're going to go back to gold. Governments will either do it willingly or they're going to do it kicking and screaming, being forced by the market itself. But we are going to go back to gold because the present system is essentially unsustainable. So it's going to be interesting to see how these things play out over the next few years. But clearly, the technology coming to bear today has a key component that we have to think about. It's gonna have an impact on the gold mining industry. Uh, it's also gonna have an impact on the way we do business globally.
4: So technological developments um, sequentially are leading to this cryptocurrency. Um, you, you're, both, you're actually in, in agreement on a number of things here, aren't you? The, 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 the ease of transfer, the ownership, um, and the costs of all this process. Um, So can the two exist um, simultaneously?
6: Can I take that? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of discussion in the gold industry that Bitcoin is a competitor to gold. They're not. Bitcoin and gold are complementary, and they share a lot of common features, The guy who created Bitcoin, whoever it is, understands completely the complexities of mining gold, except that he took the geology aspects of mining gold in the real world and converted it into complex mathematical algorithms so that the above-ground stock of Bitcoin grows at essentially the same rate as the above-ground stock of gold. You know, The guy was obviously brilliant because he understands the way gold works and the way gold is money and why it's been money for thousands of years. So, as I see it, the two are complementary, and I don't see Bitcoin as a store of value. Uh, I see it as a currency, and I don't need to own Bitcoin to use it. So, for example, let me give you um, how this would work. Let's say I like to keep my liquidity, my cash position, primarily in gold, and I wanna pay a chap in China to purchase some, some good or service. What I do is I sell some gold, buy some Bitcoin, the payment is made instantaneously, You know, for a fraction of a second, and the guy in China receives the Bitcoin and he either automatically has his system set up so he can convert the Bitcoin back to Yuan or make the decision that he wants to own uh, Bitcoin or make the decision that he wants to convert to gold because he prefers to hold his liquidity in gold. This is where Bitcoin can come into play and why it's complementary to the nature of gold. It's a very, very efficient currency and I think has the uh, potential to significantly reduce the cost of international commerce. And I think this is why the banks have been so reluctant to adapt it. You know, It's estimated that the banks receive 40% of their profits from the payments business, which is essentially a no-risk business. They just collect fees for charging you 50 bucks to send a wire transfer from New York to Hong Kong. Um, But that's the old technology. And that's a big cost to overcome. And I think that's what these new technologies in the internet are going to do. And the interesting thing is, is that the internet is a force of disintermediation. The only thing yet to be disintermediated is the banking system. And I think that's the next target for the internet. And that's why you see a lot of venture capital money going into things like uh, the various Bitcoin initiatives. Uh, Trace knows very well some of these people in uh, California and other places who are putting gobs of money into the, into the Bitcoin sphere. Trace, would you make a comment on that?
5: Yeah, I'd like to... Um Another thing that's interesting with this is, uh, and James has talked about this a lot, about how we use money and currency to to perform economic calculation. And one of the big deals with Bitcoin is that it's censorship resistant. It's our first uh, digital currency that we've made that you can't just b- apply brute force to shut it down. You know, like eGold. Uh, Even gold money with uh, the payment mechanism, the regulators have brought to bear to, you know, uh, censor it economically. And so when we have this economic censorship, uh, Bitcoin being censorship resistant has a way to cut through all of that because individuals are holding the private keys to their own money. Uh, There is no government that's holding the private keys at the end of the day that can shut the bank down or that can seize the assets. And I think that what effect that this is going to have is it's going to change our concept of what a risk-free asset is. It's one that you can't seize, that you can't confiscate, that you can't steal, that you don't have an intermediary between you and it, no ri- no counterparty risk, it's equity-based. All of these are principles of Bitcoin that uh, as, as Bitcoin continues to stay around, you know, it's still here five years later, Uh, you know, in another five or ten years it will have that much more history and trust uh, behind it. And if it becomes this risk-free asset, then it will be able to cut through so much of all the economic censorship that we see uh, in our economies. Any types of regulation, uh, currency controls, taxes, all of these things are price controls and economic censorship. Uh, James and Gatta talk about the gold price suppression scheme that Alan Greenspan testified twice before Congress that central banks stand ready to lease gold in increasing quantities should the price rise. And it's because their power to issue what, they u- what we use as currency is infinitely more valuable than the price of that portfolio asset. And so they want to engage in the suppression of the price of that. They want to economically censor it, just like they wanted to uh, censor people like Copernicus with heliocentric theory and people like Galileo and uh, other people who want to talk about different ideas that are challenging to their ideas. Uh, but Bitcoin is now one of those ideas... Uh, or at least this concept of individuals holding the private keys to their own, own money, it's an idea uh, that may well have come. And we're now living in a very exciting time of history because the technology has uh, proven itself, at least so far, to be censorship resistant. Like you can't just snuff it out.
6: Trace actually hits on an interesting point. If you go back to you know how is money invented... It was meant, invented by you know, each and every one of us in prehistory or each and every person in prehistory in terms of understanding the need to interact in society because when you interact, you improve your status. You, you fulfill your needs and your wants just like the person you're transacting with is fulfilling his needs and his wants when he interacts. And ultimately, money emerged from the free market. It's only within the last few hundred years, but particularly the last century, that governments have taken over this monetary process, which really should be a neutral tool in commerce. It should not be a political weapon, because if it is a political weapon and you're actually conducting financial warfare, the economy suffers as a consequence, and if the economy suffers, each and every one of us suffer.
2: We have to take a commercial break now, but when I come back, I will pick up uh, on some very important issues that were discussed at that June conference in Switzerland, Uh, issues such as the legality of Bitcoin and what are the chances of government cracking the Bitcoin code. Don't go away. We'll be right back with a continuation of the discussion with James Turk and Trace Meyer.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest-producing gold belt. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, the European Gold Forum panel discussion picked up again with a question from the moderator, Paul Burton, on whether or not there is sufficient liquidity for Bitcoin and gold to become greater currencies. Then there were questions from the audience as well, uh, to raising such issues as, a legal recourse if a contract is in bitcoin when governments don't recognize bitcoin as a currency what about uh, china and its position on the use of bitcoin for transactions what about the missing bitcoins a few months back how can you be confident in owning bitcoin when that sort of thing happens and what are the chances of government cracking the bitcoin code listen now as james turk and trace meyer continue the discussion on gold and Bitcoin. Right,
4: so I'm going to ask one more question, and I'm going to open it up for uh, audience questions. So, um, where's Martin Mirrenbilder? Hopefully, you're going to be asking a question from the back there, Martin. I've got one more question here, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll open it up. Um, a workable currency needs to have liquidity. Yes. Um, what are the limits on liquidity for gold money and, and on Bitcoin?
5: Um, so with Bitcoin, we've currently got about $30 million a day of uh, the equivalent of Forex volume. So it's very still tiny, nascent currency. Its total market caps around $6 billion, which would put it about, uh, in terms of countries, about 100, around, I think, the size of Guatemala's money supply. Uh, and in terms of transactions that are actually happening uh, Uh, We estimate it's probably around 30 to $40 million a day. Uh, BitPay alone processes over $30 million a month of Bitcoin transactions. So uh, still very much a small, nascent, growing uh, economy, but what do you expect for uh, magic Internet money, right? (laughs) But but isn't there some limit to growth in as much
4: that you need? uh, The computer hardware, in fact, needs to be... Oh,
5: the computer processing power needs to be to be growing the whole time, isn't that right? To generate. Uh, no, the the processing power, the Bitcoin network will actually self adjust every two weeks, whether the the processing power contributing to the network is going up or going down, and that's what regulates the supply of Bitcoin. So it'll become more difficult to earn Bitcoins or less difficult, and so you don't always need the network to be growing in terms of processing power, but even in terms of processing power, that is what does secure the network, and I would say that it's vastly over-secured even today. We've got, uh, you know, if you took the 500 largest supercomputers combined, their processing power would be like one five-thousandth of the Bitcoin network. I mean, it's minuscule. It's by far the largest uh, distributed computing system in the world, so it doesn't... I don't think it faces too much of a threat uh, from from processing power. And in the information age, uh, math is money. And so the Bitcoin's ability to do that math far surpasses anybody else's ability right now, unless there were a coordinated effort by some medium to large-sized nation state to specifically target the Bitcoin network. And even if that were to happen, uh, we could make small changes to the code and make all of the hardware obsolete and then... Uh, move over into another cryptocurrency like Litecoin or whatever to continue the ability to transfer value over distance. So, and, and then they would have to spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to compromise that one. And then we'd make a few changes to the code and move to another one. And it doesn't cost us anything to move to the code other than whatever sunk value we had in the previous one. Uh, but we could even uh, write it so that you could move. The ba- basically have the balances of your coins be able to come over into the new one, and so uh, then people wouldn't lose what they've saved in that system. So it's very much a force multiplier in that sense. James, is there any limit to using gold? Um, yeah. there
4: is. There, are, you were talking about the growth in gold uh, production and gold uh, and, and the world population. Yeah. Well, we might have seen peak gold already. We've heard today how difficult it is to find new good. gold deposits greater, lower, and all that? I'm not a
6: believer of the peak gold theory. Um, You know, the technology always comes along to enable us to continue growing this above-ground stock for uh, uh, 1.75% per annum. And I wrote a a monograph um, last year called uh, The Above-Ground Stock of Gold, Its Importance and Its Size, and traced it back to 1492. And showed how we keep growing this above ground stock of gold. Uh, I mean, you know, today you have mines in Nevada where the old timers in the 1980s walked across it because they thought it was dirt, but the technology of heap leaching changed everything, and technology will continue to change things. Um, so I can, I believe that we will continue to, to grow this above ground stock of gold. Another statistic that's interesting is, you know, a hundred years ago, to explain this technology point in South Africa, you could sink a shaft maybe a 1,000 feet, uh, uh, and uh, it would cost this much gold. Well, today it still costs this much gold, but the technology allows you to go down three meters, um, three, uh, three meters. kilometers uh, on the same weight of gold because the technology has improved so much over time. It's just one of these you know, characteristics of gold-preserving purchasing power to do things over long periods of time. But in terms of the liquidity point, Um, you know, gold is the opposite of Bitcoin, which is understandable. Gold's been around for 5,000 years. Bitcoin's been around for five years. You know, gold is is really one of the world's most liquid assets. But I will say that there's some provisos on that. And I'm speaking here as someone who's been involved in the gold industry uh, for several decades. Um, And I used to manage a uh, sovereign wealth fund for one of the very wealthy Middle Eastern countries. So I'm used to dealing in gold in size and seeing the market over many different types of conditions. The general rule of thumb is it's very easy to sell gold in size but very hard to buy gold in size, and that's particularly true today. You know, if you want to buy a couple tons of gold today, to have it delivered immediately is almost impossible to do because the market is just so tight. But this is a usual set of circumstances at the moment, evidenced by the fact that we've been in backwardation for most of the time since July. But generally speaking, gold is a very liquid asset. It's it's exchanged 24-7 against the various currencies of the world. It's not used too often as a form of currency in terms of spending but if you want to buy real estate in Vietnam for example you actually have to use gold to buy real estate Oftentimes, you have to use gold to rent space in the bazaar in Istanbul but more often than not it's just used as a means of saving although it is exchanged frequently for national currencies so there's no restrictions whatsoever in using gold as a form of currency and having a lot of liquidity for that reason okay. Are there any questions from the, the audience? Martin you do have a question thank you very much
7: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Well, I'll turn it into a question. Um, I mean, there's so much um, that uh, I certainly, and it it sounds like you and maybe many others here, uh, don't understand about Bitcoin. Um, So I I, want to ask a kind of a practical uh, question, Um, thinking that, you know, in the real world, we're, you know, uh, with all due respect to the miners here, we're run by lawyers. Okay, everything is contractual. Okay, and th- so the question comes down to if I make a contract with another party to pay in bitcoin and it turns out that the contract doesn't work or I'm not happy with the service that's been provided right what is my recourse particularly if governments do not recognize bitcoin as the legal currency of the land so that's in essence where where I'm having a a problem, and we have the same small problem, if you will, with gold. See, we can we can transact gold for currency because we have contracts that are set in the currency of that uh, jurisdiction. If Bitcoin is not in any jurisdiction, how would I get legal recourse?
5: Same yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, it it should constitute uh, property under most uh, most countries' property laws, uh, but. You know, I think we're also getting to another interesting aspect of Bitcoin that I haven't talked about. And uh, that's the concept of smart property. We can actually build contracts into the Bitcoin protocol. And so you can build your, your contract right in there and you can have the, the remedy uh, specified and it can all be executed by software code. Um, so, and all of that had to be designed into Bitcoin uh, before uh, it was really re- released out into the wild and a lot of those functionalities haven't been built out yet uh, But one functionality that uh, we just finished uh, building out in Armory is What's called multi-signature and with multi-signature instead of having one private key that you can sign to move the bitcoins? You can specify say three of seven and so it, in that script you you require three out of seven uh, signatures to sign in order to move the bitcoins so or you could do two out of three, and then it would be the, the buyer, the seller, and an arbitrator, for example and so then you could uh, be engaging in a little bit more of private law and alternative dispute resolution for your for your contracts and for your remedies, which then under the New York Convention could be applied uh, and be binding in over one hundred and fifty countries. So I mean I think your question was a much more practical one than theoretical, but I hopefully I answered it. Where you know theoretically we can build out a lot of things in the Bitcoin protocol to automate the whole process, but in the meantime we can also uh, be creative in how we use the currently existing tools to also uh, affect an outcome that we may want.
7: Okay. A follow a follow up question is I and I'm not entirely sure of. Um, this, but I, I thought I saw some headlines with respect to China not allowing contracts to be settled in Bitcoin. Is uh, did I understand that or
5: um, I'm not sure exactly what's the you're true you're running right
7: head to head. With yeah, I mean I'm not government sure. prerogative.
5: I'm not sure what the true state of the Chinese position is on it. Uh, there's a lot of.
6: It was the banks were prohibited from using Bitcoin, but it didn't. It didn't stop private contracting in Bitcoin. Yeah, but if the banks, anything, if but the but
7: banks but are prevented, then then I come back to my original question with respect to legal contract. How do I get restitution if I'm unhappy?
5: Well, there there's also a lot of disinformation and misinformation that's put into the market to shape public opinion and uh, market sentiment. So a lot of that news could actually just be. Completely false (laughs) so that so that traders can get the Chinese or get other people to sell their bitcoins cheap Uh, And at least from the the people that run exchanges over in China that I've talked to That they've I mean, they're still trading over there and but I do think that the banks are prohibited from having Bitcoin denominated accounts or engaging in uh, Bitcoin financial instruments, but they can still bank the Bitcoin exchanges from what, I, uh, from what I understand.
6: And, and with regard to the restitution issue, if you have, for example, under Anglo-Saxon Common Law in a U.K. jurisdiction, a contract, and you're f- required to fulfill under that contract, regardless what that contract says, regardless what currency that contract uses, you can bring it to a U.K. court and expect restitution under the terms of that contract. Thank you, Martin, for that question. Are there any pressing questions? For We have a couple here. Right?
2: Being an accountant, and understanding double-entry accounting, uh, I kind of like the idea of a triple-entry accounting. But there's one thing that uh, recently was in the news with Bitcoin was the missing Bitcoins. Uh, and yeah, I think it's in Japan. So you said distributed trust, but you also said that, uh, you know, if every debit it's a credit, we understand that part.
1: But you also said with the algorithms, you could trace the origin and where it is. How come
5: you can't trace where that money disappeared, that Bitcoin disappeared. Yeah, so all of those customers, uh, they trusted Mt. Gox with the private keys and they sent the Bitcoins to Mt. Gox and uh, Mt. Gox didn't necessarily tell them where they were sending the Bitcoins from there. They didn't submit to audits. Uh, it's very ironic that we would Satoshi would release something that removes the need for a trusted third party and the first thing the Bitcoin community does is create a trusted third party. And and then it's not really a surprise that that trust got abused. We've seen that trust be abused with uh, with gold storage, with dollars, with euros, uh, etc. MF
8: Global, MF Refco, global regulated Reco, entities, Bank of
5: America, Lehman Brothers. I mean, uh, there's a reason we have a lot of this regulation in place and uh, and you know Mt. Gox just abused the trust but it what, it's not a problem of the Bitcoin protocol it's the problem that individuals trusted somebody that they shouldn't have trusted and they learned after the fact uh, I didn't lose anything in Mt. Gox I didn't trust them, had no reason to <laughs>
4: Okay, I think we have... Uh, I'll take one more question over there and then we ought to wrap things up. Thank you. Oh, we've got, sorry, yes, sorry. This, sorry. Yeah, that gentleman there had his hand up earlier. For, so I'll take that one.
8: We, we've known that uh, gold has been around for thousands of years as money and so it gave our politicians and central bankers enough time to come up with ways to counterfeit, or excuse me, to print money um, and the solution in, in the case of gold, of course, has been the supply of paper gold. Uh, And uh, I guess Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies haven't been around for long enough and politicians are still trying to figure out what to do with them. And um, so that's one reason why I think cryptocurrencies are probably the closest proxy to where the gold price would be in a free market. And it would be interesting to see um, maybe cryptocurrencies uh, on index of cryptocurrencies compared to uh, james 's um, fair price of gold where it should be, uh, but my question is really, um, how will politicians react to the rise of cryptocurrencies and come up with ways to counterfeit them and probably one of one of the ways people people are considering is quantum computers, so how, how do you, you, you talked about computing power earlier, so how would you react to the possibility if, if quantum computers, and the NSA is probably already working on one, um, becomes a reality, how could that become a threat to, um, to cracking cryptocurrencies and, and counterfeiting them?
5: Yeah, I mean, it could become a potential threat None of the core developers on Bitcoin and the community is not really worried about it at all right now because it's not even on the horizon. Uh, but we've seen with previous uh, encryption algorithms, in a lot of cases we see uh, the threat coming long in advance and we're able to make modifications and changes to uh, advert that. And we can do the same thing with Bitcoin. We could switch uh, from like SHA-256 to SHA-512 if we needed to. Or we could switch uh, to a whole different encryption algorithm, uh, although that might require a little bit more consensus from everyone in the network. Uh, But we've seen that when there is a threat posed to Bitcoin as a whole, uh, for about a year ago exactly, there was an inadvertent hard fork to the network, which was about the worst thing that could possibly happen and everybody who was somebody in the community, their cell phones lit up with text messages, everybody converged in the Bitcoin development channel on IRC, Uh, within 23 minutes, the problem had been identified, a potential solution had been floated, Uh, well, several potential solutions, the solution that would have the least effect on the the average user uh, was decided upon, all the key decision makers that were needed to uh, agreed to that course of action, and within about five and a half to six hours uh, the, the the inadvertent hard fork was brought back, and there was really no uh, significant effect on any average user and There were some people who were negatively affected, and uh, a charity fund had been created uh, that rewarded them for what they had lost or would have potentially lost had they not chosen that plan of action willfully and so you know, you've got to keep in mind that there, there are a lot of people with a lot at stake in Bitcoin. And even though it's a distributed trust consensus network, uh, if there is any threat to it, whether it's technological or political or whatever, uh, a lot of these minds get very focused very quickly on figuring out what that threat is and how to neutralize it. If I could just
6: add one thing to that. You know, based on today's technology, it's impossible to crack the algorithm that drives Bitcoin, could that change in five years? Yes. You know, the future is unpredictable. We just don't know how technology is going to develop. But you can say the same thing about gold. Nobody today knows how to turn lead into gold. Could that change in five years? Yeah. In theory, supposedly it could. You know, there's nothing in the world that's risk-free. You just have to keep abreast of, you know, what is undervalued and continue to position yourself uh, and those things that work for you.
4: Thank you. Um, One final question. I think the bus is going to leave. Yes, it's me.
8: It's just uh, two very short questions. One simple one is, how are you financing yourself? I mean, where do you make your profit? Is it on transaction? Is it uh, collection fees? Or what is it? How is it? And second question is, uh, bank secrecy and money laundering. I mean, is there any way for governments really to monitor every single transaction? Go ahead. Uh, I'm just
5: an independent... Uh, entrepreneur and investor and the companies I invest in, they have their own business plans. Uh, in terms of like regulation with regards to anti-money laundering and know your customer, uh, Bitpay and Kraken, which both interface with customers, they have AML policies that they follow and uh, everything like that and try to be compliant and they work with regulators. Uh, in terms of the Bitcoin network, uh, it's just a mathematical algorithm. So it doesn't care about any of that, and you can't really serve a mathematical algorithm with a subpoena or take it to court. And even if you did, like, what are you going to do, shoot it? Like, you can't solve a math problem with violence. So at the end of the day, uh, it's censorship-resistant in that regard. And so the network's either censorship-resistant and immune to that violence, or it's not. And so far it's proven to be immune to that violence uh, that would be exerted by state actors or drug cartels or whoever it is. Uh, And if Bitcoin is not immune to that and and an attack vector is found that it's not immune to, then it's just not fit for purpose uh, as a censorship-resistant medium.
6: And generally speaking, with regard to profits, if you accept the notion that Bitcoin is a currency... You can make profits on Bitcoin the same way you make profits on a Swiss franc or profits on a year or the profits on any currency. You provide services related to that currency that make it more useful, give it a higher utility to the people uh, to encourage them to use that Bitcoin and pay you for that service, you make a profit and stay in business. Thank you.
4: Right, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're gonna have to call it a, an evening there because the first bus leaves at 20 past, the second one at 25 to 11. Um, thank you very much. Uh, will you please thank our speakers, Trace and James?
2: Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. Next week I have John Rabino coming on and uh, possibly a couple of other well-known, well-regarded uh, guests. Uh, I do want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And I want to thank each of you for listening. Uh, and uh, until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
1: Go Gold Resources, considered a buy by several well-known analysts, is soon to be Mexico's newest gold and silver producer with two impressive developments. Go Gold's Paral tailings project, with first pour anticipated in May, is expected to produce 1.8 million ounces of silver equivalent per year, generating a steady 12-year cash flow. Santa Gertrudis, a past-producing gold mine, could potentially be put back into production by mid-2015. Advancing quickly and led by a team of experienced mine builders, Go Gold is one to watch.